Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You right, Scope? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting the harm. Before we never saw the hat, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. And let me tell you, you will see during this show the relevance of the big red bus in our world. It's a good thing she's just had a tune-up. It, it's really interesting. Our guest today, and this is a long-form show, but I've got to say you are in for a real treat. This is a guy who walks the talk who will not only set the standard but hold the standard. And you'll see during the show the big red bus gets a bit of a workout. We cover some ground. We cover some territory, take a couple of off-ramps. There's a few stop signs. And there's a point where we've got to make a decision as to whether we take the big red bus left or the big red bus right. And I've got to say this is a cracking show. Uh, Welcome to all the boys. And driving the big red bus, and uh, he's got a bit of work to do today. He's going to have to be on his game, Robbo, behind the wheel. All good? All good, mate. Big red bus is all tuned up and ready to go. Big journey today. Big journey today, and we're going to cover some territory. Before we do that, I just want to, for whatever reason, This week, I've had telephone calls, I've had posts on social, and I've had some lovely emails from people who are very grateful for the work we're doing. They comment on the standard of guests, the information we draw from our guests, the production, and I just want to comment on one that I thought was lovely. A guy actually rang me, and he has gone through some hard times. His family have not been well, and his comment was, every Monday morning, And he said, I'm serious, every Monday morning, the Mojo Radio Show has been my go-to to to pick me up and get me through the week and deal with all that I'm facing. So you know who you are, but I've got to say, as I said to him on the phone, that 60-second comment is actually why we do the show. We don't have any sponsors or advertising. Hello, our friends at Dostecki. Sadly, 
But that is the juice, isn't it, mate? Isn't that nice? Isn't it nice to know that? I'm not sure that Monday morning's the morning I'd want Gary and Robbo in my ears on the on the bus on the way to work. But hey, some people obviously have some mental problems that they need some help with. It's nice to hear from people, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. The Mojo Radio Show. A couple of weeks back, a cracking show, if you haven't heard it yet, was with the host of the Better Human Project podcast, Ryan Munsey, who is literally an old mate at the show. He, his whole body's a brain. It's a fantastic show. I've had lots of lovely comments about the information and the gold that Ryan dropped. Anyway, during the show, he mentioned Logan's name, and I said, you don't mean Logan from Deuce Jim, do you? He said, yeah, Logan Gelbrick is a mate of mine. You should get him on the show. And I went, do it. That'd be great. Can you hook us up? He did, and we've got Logan on the line. Logan runs, I've got to say, not a f- not so much a famous gym like Gold's, but a gym with a massive reputation. You will hear us talk about people like Tate Fletcher, the Hollywood stuntman who was a, a guest on our show back in Rocktober a couple of years ago, Ryan Munsey. He gets a host of people. And the reason I dropped those names is these guys are hard markers. Like these guys don't just hang out at somewhere where they're not getting the value. They don't respect the company or the brand and those who are leading the company. But Logan is someone that has all those boxes ticked, and we are absolutely stoked to have him here today. So, Logan, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is awesome. You guys sound professional. <laughs> One of you is in the studio, and the other is reporting live. Uh, on, on I, the I, I wish I was reporting live from Venice Beach. Yeah, with tell you, you that, would be, that, that would be something, but uh, maybe someday. And back to you in the studio. (laughs) Before we get going with this, I've got to ask you one question because I've never spoken to anyone from Venice Beach before. Does the Whiskey A Go-Go still exist? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's not in Venice. It's on Sunset, but it definitely exists. Is it still like the hippest place in town or is it, is it changed these days? No, it's funny. It's, it's, it's not, this is actually a really great question. Um, It's not like it's much less epic. Right. And it's become a bit more of like, uh, I don't know, almost anyone can play there. It's kind of sad, you know, like yeah, you kind of right. want a little bit more cocaine, a little bit more, yeah. you know, legend yeah. status, but it's, yeah. it's a little bit more like high school punk band on the Tuesday kind of thing. History must be dripping off the walls though, right? Surely. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Insane. For the older crowd, Robbo, which you would fit into it, would you? <laughs> Mate, if you're talking about the place where bands like The Doors had their birth, I mean, seriously, who wouldn't want to go there? Dude, that's the first thing that came to mind. Uh, uh, we're going on the tangent, but like just a quick sec while we're here. A yep. great book called uh, Wonderland Avenue. Yep. Tales of Excess and something else. It sounds cool. Yep. And um, it's a crazy book about this little kid who became the manager of the doors and he was at the first show at the whiskey. Oh, really? Like, hey, I don't know. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Everybody dies. Except <laughs> for him. <laughs> and I mean, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Do you know, it's interesting, Logan talking about sunset. I heard Rogan, uh, the other day on a show with one of his comedian mates and they were talking about the comedy store and how, yeah. After all these years, after all the legends that have gone through, it still is the stage to play and it's still the gig to score and still how hard it is to go from doing, like you get on there and do a freebie into getting a set for seven minutes and getting paid. And it's 
seems to be one of the venues that really has held that vibe about. Yeah, that's that's a great call, actually. And I've thought about that maybe, I want to say more, but like for the first time, really, as of late, because you guys were mentioning Tate before the show started, who's good friends with, with Joe. Uh, Tate really appreciates comedy, and so um, he has sort of reminded me of that that craft and, and, uh, you know, just the people that are on that scene and what it takes to get there. And you're right. It's, it's still as legendary as it was, which is cool. It's funny, you know, there's probably a lesson in this, Logan, and I didn't expect to start the interview this way, but let's, let's roll with this off ramp. Thanks, Robo. Let us, let us down on the big red bus. Um, It's funny because the what rogan and tate and a lot of these guys are talking about when they talk about the comedy stories going back to the lady mitzi who was this hard ass legend who made or broke comedians who died only recently and mm-hmm. it's funny you, you go back to whether it be the you know halcyon days of the house of blues or whiskey a go go or you wonder how much it is the the person who is controlling the vibe, the tone, the legend. And when that changes, how the whole vibe of the place, the whole direction of the place can change. And it's probably a good lesson for business, social groups, teams, companies of how important it is with the longevity of a brand. Because a comedy store is still considered by the, the guys who play there and the people who go to watch the legend continues yeah. and, and you wonder how much that was just to do with who's sitting at the head of the table. Yeah, that's a great question. This is like a really awesome segue, uh, <laughs> you know, into the, the show, like, holy shit. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm coming to this realization and this is a little bit of a roundabout way of answering your, your question there that I think is worth doing. So, I have erred very strongly on the side of, you know, the belief that all things are teachable skills and that, um, you know, especially around Deuce and like what we're doing with the brand and coaching coaches and whatnot, that I really believe more so than most in the ability to cultivate you know, leadership and these things that you're maybe referring to that, um, nurtured the vibe at a place like the comedy store for, you know, decades. And I really believe that that's true. However, you know, what I'm coming to realize is not everyone is willing to sort of step up to whatever that role is and hold the space for that leadership role. You know, uh, I firmly believe that um, is this woman still in charge there or is she still around? She or? died. She died just recently, oh, she uh, died. which is why, she died yeah. Well. Yeah. And, uh, it's why there's been so much talk about it. Logan is because, uh, and there's hardly, what's interesting is that there's hardly a comedian who doesn't say they had a problem with her in the same breath. They'll say, but they loved her. And she was, she drove the whole industry there, but she was a hard ass and she held, she, to your point, she held the standard. Yeah. And that's sort of what I'm getting at. So she, she's passed away. I firmly believe that it's quite possible to build an organization that transcends the self of, let's say, the leader. 
and that whomever, you know, is sort of coming into that role can continue to cultivate and even improve upon that vibe. I mean, but the chances are that that won't be the case. And what I'm getting at here is the reason why the chances are that this legacy won't continue with the same sort of texture and standard that it has is because it's really difficult to do something like what she did with uh, an institution like the comedy store. And it's funny that you're mentioning that all these uh, comedians reflect on her and a hundred percent of them share something about her, like, you know, being tough and being a hard ass. And that's exactly it. I think if you look at any organization, I mean, Apple went through this, you know, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs was ousted out of that company and then later brought back a hundred percent of people that were ever close to Steve Jobs, uh, mentioned similar things. Like he was an asshole. Um, it really does come down to being immovable on that culture or the standard or whatever it is that you'd like the institution to, to sort of stand up for. And the reason why that's so rare and sacrificing that is so uh, popular is that it's just always going to be easier to do the other thing. It's always going to be easier to make concessions. And so when you look at an organization like that, that's done it for so long, you know, I think more than half of what is inspiring by that is just the longevity of someone saying no to bullshit, you know, because you could make a great case that this poor woman, 10 years in, 20 years in would just maybe take the deal, take the bait, take, you know, take the concession, give up the quality and get paid or give up the quality and do a favor or give up the quality and, and just rest a little bit, you know? And so, uh, that is a skill that I think is teachable, but I think the reason why it's so rare and the reason why there's usually a drop off when that leader is removed from the position for whatever reason is, um, th- there's a large majority of people who are unwilling to, to, you know, hold the standard, so to speak. Because if we go down that track, Logan, and this is a good off ramp, um, we interviewed Ryan Holiday a couple of months back who wrote Ego is the Enemy. And, Hearing you talk about that, I totally buy into what you're saying. You'd also have to think that maybe ego comes into it, where if somebody does come into, whether it be a venue, a company, a footy team, a social group, a PNC at a school, wherever it might be, one would have to think that that person coming in would have to do their research to understand, well, what is the standard and what was the dream and what has made this place so famous and iconic in terms of a vibe. And then that leader would have to put their ego aside to say, well, actually, maybe the, my predecessor actually did do some good things that I should continue. But I suspect a lot of times they don't do their homework. They walk in with assumptions and then they put their ego to place, in which case they create something different, which can or cannot be in some cases successful. Do you reckon that's a fair hallucination? Oh, of course. And I think what you know, this is what came to mind earlier when you mentioned the longevity of the comedy store, uh, because I think it's, it is a characteristic of good comedy is that, um, ultimately I think what rises above the ego and what this woman was probably trying to do when she was hard ass is 
uh, seek truth. You know, what is the most authentic representation of this organization? And when you're sort of a gatekeeper for truth, which a leader, the leader role often is, uh, it could, it could appear from the outside that, oh, this woman is a hard ass because she's an egomaniac and it's only her way. But I don't believe that that's what was happening. And I think what you're saying is that um, the ego distracts us from truth. And we have to put that aside in order to, to find what that truth is. And, and in terms of someone who's coming in replacing a previous leader, uh, if that individual's highest priority is finding and maintaining this organization's truth, then all things need to move aside to find that truth, including their ego and their opinion and external pressures, et cetera. And I think that's sort of like the North star that, that sort of sets us free of all this other kind of bullshit, you know, that's gold, Robbo out of the gate, out of the gate. That's gold. That's gold. Venice gold. I like that. Venice gold. <laughs> Fitness is a great, is a great sort of Petri dish for all kinds of gross bacteria so to speak to use the the imagery (laughs) of people who you know people who are their starting point is not truth and their starting point is um a defensive position of something that they need to win you know i'll tell you what if you are if you are in the business of teaching let's say human performance you must, above all, must be interested in truth. Because if you're not, then you will find yourself defending your position at the cost of truth. If you are, you know, say like a Zumba instructor and you're more interested in Zumba being correct than what is the truth, then you will close off yourself to what we call disconfirming information. You will seek out confirming information and you will sort of perpetuate your own dogma, which is many layers below what is actually true. And the reason why this is so important is because it's what we're all after. But the reason why it's so uncommon is it's very difficult. If I'm interested in what's true, then I'm never really off the hook. I have to continually ask questions and, and seek out, like I said, disconfirming information. You people who are interested in truth are continually trying to find how they might be wrong about something. And very few people in fitness are willing to do that because of the ego. And because it seems as though it doesn't pay to be wrong. You know, what personal trainer wants to appear to be something other than an expert. So there is no questioning happening in, in many fitness expressions and you get into trouble. And no one's off the hook of that. CrossFit, gymnastics, you know, powerlifting. There are many silos in which people are not really interested in truth. They're interested in being correct, you know. And uh, I don't know. I think that there's a cool never-ending process for organizations or leaders or teams in pursuing that. And then we just call that the standard, you know, truth. And that's where I want to go with this. It's interesting. We um, we had, so for our listeners who are catching up, we had a, a guy called Tate Fletcher, who's a good mate of Logan's on the show for October a couple of years ago. Still 
one of the most memorable shows we've done. We loved having Tate on and it was a long form show. We talked about a lot of things, but during the show, he said the world's on fire and we put it on a sign in the studio here. And I think right next to Robbo oh. is a new sign going, seek truth, be a gatekeeper for truth. I reckon that is just gold. Yeah. Well, no, and, it's off. Yeah. And, this, and we've also put a photo of a fire extinguisher next to it now. Because we want, we want to be the fire extinguisher. I am worried, though, because uh, when Logan went down the Petri dish and bacteria growing, it makes me think he can see the studio. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I cleaned up. There are some things growing in here, mate. Um, well, if you wouldn't leave your chip crumbs all over the couch to begin with, that'd be a good start. Cool. Cornies and hello, our friends at Doseki. Um, Logan, I want to head down the standard side. Before I do that, I just want to recorrect the bus and just ask you, I think it's an interesting area to be, to seek to be a gatekeeper for truth. I think I love the fact that you've got to be curious every day. You've got to hold yourself to a standard. As Michael Gervais said on our show, the guy from the Seattle Seahawks, game recognizes game. So in front of your family or your peers, you are setting a tone, you're setting a game. Why is it so damn hard? Like, why do people, why are people so scared to tell the truth? and to be honest to themselves, their authentic self. Because in this day and age, I don't know, it just seems like we're getting soft. And yet the people who speak out, who do speak the truth, seem to be cutting through and getting a big following. Why is that not mainstream? Why is that such a small proportion of those that are prepared to be authentic and speak the truth? Yeah, there's a certain economy there, you know, it's like people, uh, I don't want to be controversial, but people will say, you know, why does Tom Brady make $25 million playing a game that like very few people care about and isn't changing the world? Why does he get paid all this money to do, to play a kid's game in the, in the NFL, you know? And the, the, economy of scale there is because there's only one of him. Anyone can try out and there's just one person who can do his job so far and whoever will replace him will be replaced, uh, will be paid handsomely to replace him, you know? And so leadership and the willingness to be vulnerable and, and in this example, speak the truth or sort of swim upstream is what it ends up feeling like, uh, is often rewarded and admired because it is rare. And I think deep down, we're all sort of driven by a similar compass. You know, no matter how much people are, are resisting and suppressing this in themselves, I think everybody's interested in that um, for themselves. But you're right there. We, we as humans are, this is just my belief, are in the middle of a sort of a prank you know, we, in our biology, we are both driven towards curiosity. That's what allowed us to sort of you know, leave the cave and, and ask questions and, and expand ourselves. Uh, but also in our biology is we're sort of tethered to safety. And the path of least resistance is important to our survival. And so... Uh, there's a great deal of courage there, and I think that will always be rare. I don't, uh, I, I don't know. I think life is short, and you know, everybody sort of has to run their own race. And so, I don't know if the goal is to get everyone to be the black sheep and sort of lead from the front. Uh, I, 
I'd, I'd want to live in a world like that, but uh, I, I don't know that that's our choice or our in our control. How did hold the standard start? That's that's a phrase when I first saw your material and learned about you and heard you on a few podcasts. That was something that I I took from your stuff, and now it seems to have a life of its own and it's become a thing. Where where did that come from? How how did that start as a philosophy? that you and the gym now have, uh, you know, you'll see it on a t-shirt. Yeah. Well, let me first say that I think the only reason why it has life of its own, so to speak, and that people even know what it is, is because just like I said, deep down, I think everyone is recognizing this compass inside of themselves and that's what they want. I can't tell you how long, how, how many years, I mean, since the very beginning, um, gym owners and coaches from around the world have reached out and said, that's what I meant to do. Like whatever it is that you guys are doing is what I meant to do with our facility, with our gym, with our program. And I think what they're saying is they didn't maybe see it as clearly or, or it didn't work out or, or, you know, their ability to sort of hit the mark wasn't there, but I think we're all, pursuing this peak expression. And so the standard just represents that our, our peak expression. I think uh, there are many different examples of concepts that work the same way. Uh, We use a structure, for example, to prevent our, athletes and our coaches from stagnation and it's called deliberate practice and deliberate practice as well sort of informs this whole the standard concept except for it calls the the standard it calls it a mental representation creativity works the same way um you know if a you know, BMX rider is competing in the X games and he or she is going to perform like a, you know, 540 double backflips. I don't know what these things are called, but let's just say this movement, 540 double backflip. The rider in his or her head has to imagine this mental representation or the, the standard or the perfect 540 double backflip. And then what performance looks like or what it looks like down here on earth is inching closer and closer to that representation. And we almost never meet the standard or uh, execute the mental representation, but the best athletes in the world just operate a little bit closer to it. And the reason why this is compelling isn't so much that, um, you know, it's where the, the 0.001% operate. It's because this process of closing the gap between reality and the standard or reality and this mental representation, that process is universally relevant. There's not a single person that will ever walk into the gym or that will listen to anything I have to say in some sort of coaching session that is immune to that dynamic whether they are a world-class athlete or whether they are brand new. And it's sort of this 
perpetual motion machine. It's, it's a process for excellence that never goes away. And I, to me, that is the mechanism of life. That is the meaning of life. And so um, we wanted Deuce, the brand, to sort of represent idealism. You know, you can use these all as synonyms, the standard, a mental representation, idealism. These are all peak expression. These are all synonyms for the same thing. And none of us are there. All of us are trying to inch our way closer. And that is something that um, hangs over us literally in the gym, you know, in sort of gold leaf paint. Um, But figuratively, as this responsibility to, to show up every day and, and answer that question, who are you becoming? And so, uh, to me, it was a cultural sort of beacon that would make sure that Deuce Gym will always be better tomorrow than it was the previous day. And it'll be better next year than the year before. And, uh, it really plays on some heartstrings, I think, because, whether people were able to articulate it or not, I think a lot of coaches and gym owners had that in mind, at least in the back of their mind when they got into this in the first place. So they wanted to help people in the first place. Is, is what you're saying that we should, pro- we should focus on the process more than the outcome, Logan? Because it seems like people worry about the outcome. They can see the outcome, but then they don't go about breaking it down to the process. Because I like the, the, the whole notion of, you know, the mental um, – the mental representation and the, the deliberate practice seem to be process focused. Is that kind of the philosophy you guys take? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and it's not by choice, you know, like this isn't my opinion, <laughs> you know, when we're talking about uh, getting to truth, uh, dude, I empathize with people who see the result, they want the result. And then there they are staring at the result. <laughs> You know, uh, the, the stoic sort of truth, if anyone out there, you know, learns performance on a very deep level, you learn that it's, it's quite, uh, black and white in terms of at least how you improve performance. And, uh, if you ever get to compete at anything at a really high level, you learn very quickly that any effort placed in an area that is outside of your control is wasted effort. And if you compete in a thing long enough or at a high enough level, you realize really quickly that you can't afford to spend time wasted in areas that don't contribute to your performance. And so that's why the shift happens from the result to the process. It is not my preference. I would rather like be like Ferraris and mansions. Like, let's focus. You know, like <laughs> fucking everybody <laughs> wants that or whatever. Everybody wants the outcome. That's the easy part. What what high performance individuals do is they trade that thing that's outside of their control to something that is in their control, and that is this this process. You know, it's funny. Like, I teach this. Uh, hold the standard summit, you know, where these gym owners and business owners and entrepreneurs come and they're learning about stuff. And, and, you know, sometimes I sort of end up like breaking the bad news to them. I go, I'm sorry that if you came here and wanted to learn from me how to get more members in your gym, uh, because fucking, I don't know how to do that. And guess what? You, 
you can't do that either. That, that is a result from some process. So I understand that that's what you want and maybe that's what I want. Let's shake hands on that. But uh, there's nothing about wanting that that will elicit that outcome. We need to get down to, well, what is it that improves our chances of this outcome? And it's really uh, hard. It, 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 you have to strip your emotions from that a little bit. But the, the sort of black and white truth is process yields results. It never guarantees it. You know, the, I say this all the time. The one certainty that your life and my life uh, is ruled by, the only certainty is uncertainty. And that means that we will never fully be in control of our outcome. Only our process. So we can gripe and bitch and moan about what is or isn't in our control, but the, the sort of high performance stoic mind would look at that and say, well, I got 24 hours in the day. I can either waste some of those in an area of focus that doesn't serve me, or I can get down to improving my chances. That's it. It's interesting. You just mentioned the word focus. So I want to take you back to when you were 12 years old and you're playing pool at a friend's place and your friend commented about you having the great ability for powerful focus. And that was the moment you had the realization that you did have a great ability to have laser beam focus on something or a laser beam mindset. When, when that's happening for you, Logan, I'm just curious, what's, what's the soundtrack in your mind? Like what's the default you go to that allows you to do that? Because focus today in such a distracted world, as Cal Newport said in Deep Work, focus is the new IQ. And it's something that you seem to not only believe in and do, but you've become known for it. What what goes through your mind when you're doing that? What's the soundtrack? Wow, that's a, that's often you remember that, that story. Um, yeah, you know, for me, and I think this is what rules all behavior in performance is, you know, if you're interested in that outcome, that result, if you're really interested in that result, you're by definition interested in the best practices to achieve that result, or at least you should be right. Like it would be crazy if you told me that you really wanted some sort of outcome. You really wanted to win a basketball game, but then weren't so interested in how to do it. Right. And so we can assume that, that you're interested in the process that would get you your result. Well, I focus on things that I care about. Right? I think that's something that we all do on some level. But it's this basic understanding that any deviation from focus on what it is that's in my control is detrimental to my my chances for success is the easiest sort of way to talk myself into focusing, you know? And so uh, it's really selfish for good reason, but it's really selfish. The reason why um, I think I'm able to focus or others should focus is because it, it's most literally building our chances for success in whatever it is that we're doing. And, you know, I think I was just never really particularly gifted in any one thing. And so I wanted all these cool outcomes and I realized that I had to dump a bunch of energy into it. And I don't know how much of that is just like, you know, uh, a gift or, or whatever, but that's how I view it. And, and that 
story about playing pool was, you know, one, the first thing that I heard, the first bit of feedback that I got, I think externally that sort of indicated that to me. And the second was, uh, some years later when I was 14 or 15, um, when I was a catcher in baseball, which is a position that like no one wants to play because it's kind of a horrible place to hang out. And, uh, you wear all this weird equipment and, uh, you have to like squat the whole time and pitchers throw shit at you and you get foul tips and stuff. Anyway, so it's a rare, it's a position that has a, <laughs> has a lot of value because not a lot of people have the specific skill to play it. You know, if you can play left field, you can play right field, but it doesn't mean you can catch kind of thing. And so long story short, uh, it was a position that's in demand and, I had a really hard time at a young age saying no to people. And so one day a coach called me after school and was like, Hey, we're, we're down a player in this, you know, scout league. The game is tonight at Long Beach state. Please. Can you be there? And I said, sure, I'll be there. You know? And so I'm driving down to this game with my dad and I'm in the passenger seat and I felt this sort of like anxiety coming on. And I felt very foreign to me. And if you think about it in that moment, mathematically, as I'm in the car, mathematically, I've done more work in preparation for that game than any other game prior because I'm as old as I've ever been. <laughs> right. And I showed up down to the field and I felt completely naked. Like I didn't know how any of that shit worked. I was like, how do you play catch? I'm just, What's happening out here? And I felt like just a fish out of water. And I realized in that moment, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, where this feeling is coming from. And I recognized that what I had been doing at a high level for years at this point was visualization. And because I, every other game I'd been to, I'd been able to anticipate it for longer than just an hour or two that I had been rehearsing and seeing and looking at imagery in my head over and over and over again to prepare for the, for the unknown future, so to speak, except this moment, I didn't have that little, that uh, homework time. You know, I didn't have that time to, to do that imagery that I was doing sort of subconsciously. And that was the second time that I sort of recognized that, Oh my God, this focus, this mental preparation thing is, so much a part of why I'm able to have success, you know, uh, wasn't very gifted athletically and all these things. And so, uh, I, to me, it's just like a, it's a, it's a tool that you can either use it or not. And if you're not going to use it, you're playing against a lot of people who are willing to, to use it. And, and, and that's an advantage that I couldn't give up. You know, to me, it's, it performs as that black it's funny, and white. We had David Heinemir Hansen from who wrote Rework and Remote and from Thirty Eight Signals, who invented uh, Basecamp and Ruby on Rails, and he went in ten years from not having a driver's license to being on the podium at Le Mans, the, the world's greatest endurance sporting event, and he was an amazing guest. But the reason I bring it up is that he uses negative visualization. So not only does he go down the track you're talking about and taking the time to be able to see it, but then the flip side is he uses it from, if I don't do this, or what are the possibilities? And he uses negative visualization. Is that part of your toolkit? So uh, before I give you a definitive answer, what, 
what do you mean in terms of if he doesn't do this? Like he's yeah, seeing so negative outcomes. If I or- if I don't do this work, this is what might happen. Or if I don't Yeah, I find myself seeing every scenario possible. And, you know, the when you get into like the world of um you know, uh, sports psychology and self-talk, uh, you know, I don't remember the, the specific number, but it almost doesn't matter, you know, whether it's 30,000 or 300,000 or 3000, the words that we can speak to ourselves in our head per minute exceeds with great, you know, um, uh, a, a multiple, much greater than anything we could type or write or say out loud. And so the scenarios that you can cover in your head are endless almost. Right. And so, yeah, I think I would see everything. I I would see uh, every pitch, every uh, defensive play, every uh, reaction plus minus or otherwise um, just trying to familiarize myself with, with the future. You know, I think there's a million different mechanisms that uh, performers use to to do that, to try to make themselves at ease with an uncertain future. And this is where like routine comes in. This is why visualization is a big part of routine. But there's lots of like physical routines. You know, people do weird superstitions and and you know they put their socks on certain ways every day. And and it's funny to sort of call these out and and you know oh you you eat the same meal before every game or something like this. But these routines are important to putting the mind in a familiar place to minimize as many variables as possible that will get in the way of performance. You know, at the end of the day, we're trying to express as much of our potential as possible. We can't really go above our potential mathematically. So all we're trying to do is remove the, things that will impede our expression of that. And yeah, I think seeing positive outcomes and seeing potential negative outcomes just helps paint a more fuller picture so that when we're in the moment doing the thing, we can be there in the moment. The word peak expression you used a few times and it's something that seems to be part of your makeup. And I heard you say that to gain peak expression, we need intrinsic and not extrinsic motivation. Can you just run that for us? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I don't want to say that you don't need extrinsic motivation or that extrinsic motivation is bad. You know, extrinsic meaning external. So money, fame, positive reinforcement verbally from a coach, uh, you know, fans, maybe some sort of metal. These are all extrinsic motivators. Intrinsic ones are internal ones. So like a drive based on your values or something like this. Um, I'm not here to say that extrinsic motivation is bad, but what we know about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is that extrinsic motivation is just a little bit more flimsy. It's a little bit, um, less robust. Uh, it's not as resistant and it doesn't hang around as long. It doesn't put up with as much as intrinsic motivation, you know? And so, uh, when you're looking at those two based on just their utility, it seems to me that we have uh, an obvious choice 
uh, here in terms of best practices to enroll ourselves in the more deeply rooted, more resourceful, the sort of deeper well motivator, which is intrinsic motivation. So, uh, you know, there's a million different implications of this from fitness to and beyond. But, you know, um, for example, you know, people are like, well, what fitness practice, you know, should I take on? Is it, should I do this CrossFit thing or should I do, you know, a bodybuilding thing? And it's like, we, knowing what we know about the long arduous journey of like a fitness thing and how motivation comes and goes and how often people quit and how little people have success in this thing, you'd like to choose something that is connected to your values or something that you believe in because all of our real goals are going to be somewhere beyond what's comfortable, right? It's like the pursuit of your goals plus a bunch of shitty days, pursue your goals plus some gnarly life adversities, the pursuit of your goals plus, you know, a financial catastrophe, you know? And so when these sort of, um, thunderbolts of adversity, which is what coach Pat Riley would call them when these inevitable thunderbolts of adversity sort of hit you or your organization, we'd much rather fall back on this intrinsic motivation to move forward in our practice than uh, hope that the money's good enough to hang around, you know, or that the, the fans make you feel happy enough to put up with another day on the grind, so to speak. And so um, for me, all motivation is good, but without intrinsic motivation, it feels like we are susceptible to, um, sort of deviations from the plan were susceptible to quitting and intrinsic motivation is just a little bit sturdier ground to stand on. So just to, to continue that on, Logan, we're on, we're back on the, back on the freeway again in the big red bus. We call the Mojo radio show. Robbo's driving. We are heading due North. We've got an intersection. We can go left or we can go right. Tell me your philosophy. Cause this is something that I found really interesting when I heard you talk about it. What's going left and what's going right? Oh man, this is awesome. So, uh, I wrote this book that is still being edited and it's, uh, it's taking years off my life and it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but the most important <laughs> thing I've ever done. <laughs> but, uh, we're, we're, we've essentially been talking about it all show in some one way or another. Um, and it's a book about decision-making. And so I just, sort of coined these terms to help create imagery, just like you did beautifully. We can turn right or we can turn left. And what that is in reference to is that I believe that human beings in general subscribe to this mental model that for our purposes, we'll say puts our peak expression Another word we can use there is like your dreams, your your calling, your idealistic life to the right. And then to the left, we have this concession of those dreams or that peak expression. And there are some some thoughts that we attribute to both sides. And, and the broken decision-making model that I observe being used by nearly everyone around the world uh, is that to the right, we have this really cool 
dream life. Um, this is in terms of relationships and in terms of career and in terms of lifestyle practices and, and all different avenues of our life. But it is perceived as less reasonable. It's perceived as more risky. It's less socially reinforced. And to the left, as we sort of concede these things, are seemingly safer outcomes. They're more logical. The, they're more, the road's more well-traveled. So it feels like there's more support structures there. Um, and these things are also more socially reinforced. Going to the right looks like self-respect. Going to the left looks like self-sacrifice. And what I find is that what makes the decision-making mechanism broken for many of us is that our what compels us to move to the right is largely emotional. It's this thing in the pit of your stomach where you feel connected to. Uh, but the thing that compels us to move left, well, it, it seems like it's our logic side, our reasoning brain taking over. And what I said about like a lengthy fitness pursuit is true about any lengthy sort of rite of passage journey. And that is that it's going to get hard. And so if you want more than anything in your life to make music or have a startup that helps kids or whatever it is that we want to say is your example, um, at some point, the feel-good emotional drive to do that is going to be flimsy, like that extrinsic motivation. And we're going to start to question and many people justify giving up their peak expression by convincing themselves that they need to be reasonable, where it's, it's not realistic, it's illogical, and it's safer if I go left, so to speak. And because this is the broken sort of logic around this decision-making, I decided to write a book that basically puts together a logical justification for going right. An objective, utilitarian, mathematical argument for pursuing your peak expression. And there's a number of different things that we know that sort of proves this to be true that I guess we could just distill down into an example that I use a lot, which is that Dave Grohl, the lead singer of the Foo Fighters, who you don't necessarily have to be a fan of the Foo Fighters, Oh, we recognize are. that this is a <laughs> person. Okay. We are. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is a person who is a rock star, which is like a sexy example to use. And so, you know, maybe some people are immediately rolling their eyes. But the thing to recognize about this particular rock star is it's not like he just got lucky. Okay, so he's a, a guy who started playing the drums in his um, in his bedroom as a kid. You know, on the on the pillowcases. And he put in his 10,000 hours, so to speak, by himself out of sure, uh, sheer will and passion, started playing in some punk bands. And then he got picked up by a band called Nirvana and uh, was a drummer of the greatest rock band of its time. And you could look at that and say like, yeah, but that's a one in a million shot. This guy uh, just got lucky. What does that have to do with me? Well, 
Dave Grohl never had a drum lesson in his entire life. Actually, I lied. He had one drum lesson in his entire life, and he was well into his teens at this point, and he'd been playing the drums for years. And he took a drum lesson because he thought it was going to take his playing to the next level. And when he went to the first lesson, the drum teacher said, oh, you're holding the stick wrong. You need to hold it like this. And he immediately walked out and said, like, this is, um, I can't, right? And so this is someone who put in hours and hours and hours of work to build mastery in a thing that didn't have any guaranteed success or didn't have any sort of uh, socialized structures to support, uh, sort of a, it's this against all odds story. And not only did he win this job to drum for Nirvana that you could say is a one in a million lucky shot, what proves that he, he it wasn't a one in a million lucky shot is that after Kurt Cobain passed away, in sort of the mourning process, Dave sort of gathers himself together and he puts together what eventually becomes the first album from Foo Fighters. And this album is written, played, and recorded by Dave by himself. There's one guitar track from one guest appearance on the entire album. And so Dave laid down the drums he laid down the bass, he laid down the guitar, and he laid down the vocals for an entire album. And then handed the album to like an old manager and they said, wow, this is amazing. Passes it on to the record label and then the rest is history. Oh shit, I have a record deal and I need to go on tour for an album that will become platinum. I need a band now, right? And that type of utility is extremely interesting to me. And here's the, the reason for me bringing up Dave Grohl is there's a lot of really logical, quote unquote, reasonable thinking that would land Dave Grohl as the, my bank teller when I go to Wells Fargo. And could you imagine the fucking fallout, the consequences of having someone who's capable of doing that much work at that deep of a level, providing that much value to not just himself, but the community around him clocking in at Wells Fargo. There's no mathematical way that he could work that long, work that hard, work that deeply affect people on a, even uh, the slightest scale to what he's done doing this other thing. And that is the sort of math of it in terms of going right. And, and it's a linear process. What we know is that when people choose to go right, they understand commitment on a level that you cannot understand otherwise. Because they understand commitment on a level that you can't understand otherwise, it puts you in position to build, which is the next step, a large body of deep work. Not just any work, but deep work or deliberate practice, whether you want to... Um, you know, refer to uh, your Cal, boy. Cal who New, you mentioned Cal Newport, this yeah, before? Yeah. Deep work. Yeah, yeah. Cal, yeah, Cal Newport, who's referenced in the book, or deliberate practice, Anders Ericsson stuff. Essentially, it is uh, this notion that not all practices created equal. These people are able to find best practices, remove the autopilot mechanism, and find peak performance in what they're doing. Well, when you do that and you develop mastery in something, through deep work. It gets us to the third thing that is available to us when we go right, which is your resistance to adversity. People who are masters of their craft tend to weather the 
storm a little bit better than people who are riding the surface level, right? Things get weird. You got to work overtime a bunch of times when you're at Wells Fargo. That's when you throw up the papers like the meme and you say, fuck it, I'm out of here. I don't know how many things that Dave Grohl could endure. Death of his best friend, the whole Courtney Love weirdness. I don't know what else goes on in his life. I think he got divorced. At one point, you know, he lost all his money doing this thing. You can't take a guitar out of the dude's hand. Right? He is extremely resilient to the adversity that's coming towards all of us. That is compelling to me. The fourth thing that shows up is this understanding of flow. We know that peak flow or the, the, the meaning of life, peak human expression, happens at the intersection of peak preparation and peak challenge. So people who are after best practices obviously have put in the work, but they are continually putting themselves in environments to challenge their craft. That looks like playing in front of 100,000 people uh, you know, in Leeds uh, for the second time in your career in 20 years uh, with a band that you made up in your room. You know, uh, and then the last thing that Going Right affords us, which is sort of the nail in the coffin on the argument, uh, is that you develop highly transferable skills when you're doing this. A lot of people might agree with everything that I just said, but there's this thing in the back of our minds that says, you know what? but what if I'm wrong about this? And they start to think about this decision-making as an accuracy test. Well, I shouldn't date this person. I shouldn't really love this person with my full self, fully vulnerable, because what if I fall in love with them and then 20 years from now, I have a change of heart. I shouldn't devote my entire life to, to playing soccer at the highest level, because what if I get to college and I have a change of heart? Well, here's the thing. Even if you don't make it, and this is my personal sort of anecdotal life experience, sort of I'm tacking on to this objective thing, is that you develop highly transferable skills. What is it about commitment at the highest level, the ability to enroll in deep work, uh, resilience to adversity, and understanding how to achieve a flow state that is not transferable to literally anything else in, in, in life? You know, and uh, I will tell you fully that my short career uh, or long road to a short career in professional baseball is why I'm even halfway decent in any of the shit that I do now. And they have nothing to do with hitting curveball. You know, writing has nothing to do with, you know, driving a baseball the opposite side of the field. <laughs> you know, getting a, a, a pop time, you know, to second base under one nine has literally nothing to do with coaching the clean and jerk or it has everything to do with it, you know? And so this is my sort of objective look at this thing. And, and my hope in writing the book was that a bunch of people could sort of cowardly still give up everything that they really want in their life, but they could no longer tell me that they were being smart and more reasonable for doing so. Do you know, it's interesting, Logan. I think that people, There'd be millions of people who would turn to the Foo Fighters for inspiration, help them get through a hard time, get back up off the ground. Their music would inspire and give determination to a massive crowd. And I think that the book you're writing, I think the thing I love most about it is there is a, a visual that we've already talked about in the show. There's a visual that I'm in. I'm at that intersection and I can go left or right, make a call. It's your choice. If you go left, deal with it. If you go right, 
that's where the idealism and your dreams, all the things you've outlined, I think it's actually a super, super powerful book which will help people in the same way the Foo Fighters do. Different, same but different, right? My question for you is I know you've been yeah. writing this for quite a while. My question is why the hell haven't you finished it? Man, so, well, the book is done, like I'm done writing it, um, but it's in the editing process. And long story short, things that aren't that interesting is um, the first two uh, editors in this process sort of had to bail on it because of uh, other commitments and conflicting things. But I literally, uh, it's so funny, I've been on a fucking million podcasts yeah, saying the you. same thing <laughs> over the last however many months. Yeah. Um, but I literally have an email in my inbox from the guy who I'm going to go with on this thing. It's going to cost me a shitload of money, but, um, this thing will be wrapped up and you know what? It's super meta, just like everything. If you really want it to be, um, that writing this book had to be this hard (laughs) because of the message that it contains. And it's sort of a metaphor for the thing, like me going through this process is my, my version of, of going right. And you know, as much as, um, it's important for people to know the sort of realities of pursuing these, these long form pursuits of what we really want in our life, uh, knowing it's going to be hard, doesn't change that fact, you know, and, uh, this is taken every single thing I've got to do and we still don't know if it's going to be successful, you know, and that's part of the, the, the vulnerability. Of it. Well, two things. I'll take a stab. I reckon it will be because I, I think the content you've got there, the way you articulated all the bits we've spoken about so far into a metaphor that I can visualize, I think is super powerful. And uh, the second part of it is that when the book does come out, which won't be that far away, can we get you back on to talk about the journey, the book, the key messages? Can we get you back on again? Oh, of course. I would love that. Yeah. I'd like to back up down the freeway just for a second and take that off ramp to the right that we just missed. You, you talked in there about Dave Grohl starting drumming at a young age in his bedroom and it occurred to me listening to you talk about the rest of that story, it occurred to me that I wonder how much of this res- um, resistance to taking the right turn to going towards our dreams and our goals and taking the left safe turn is actually ingrained in us from a young age. Like we're taught, you know, you grow up, you get married, you have a family and once you've got a family, you have responsibilities and with those responsibilities comes a certain sacrifice. I wonder if you see that in the research that you've done for the book and and if you do, how you think we overcome that in terms of raising our own kids? Well, absolutely. So there's there's two ways that uh, I'd like to answer this. Let me see. The first shortest, most specific one was about raising kids. So, uh, you know, as, you know, I've said many times and as I sort of beat a dead horse with this, you know, the one book that everyone needs to read when they join Coaches Prep is Carol Dweck's work called Mindset. She, you know, she coined this term, the growth and the fixed mindset. And her work actually started with uh, 
the teaching of children and it's surrounding building a framework or a mindset that views our attributes and our traits as malleable ones uh, versus fixed ones, meaning like, you know, Bobby isn't just good at math and that is a truth that is unchangeable. He can actually get to algebra and suck at it. And Susan isn't just shitty at, at drawing. She can actually nurture this craft if she would like and express herself however much she would like in art. Um, you know, and so parents have a huge ability to sort of formulate this growth mindset in their children based on how they talk to them. You know, every parent wants to say, Oh my God, Billy, you're so smart where that might feel good in the moment, but doesn't build a framework for success in the real world, which is like, Billy doesn't get to go tell his boss one day that like, yeah, mom said I'm smart. So if we can just wrap this up, give me the job, we're good. Uh, Billy needs to understand that his outcomes are his responsibility and that he can work hard at something. You know, he can really study for the science quiz and get a good grade. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the story around that can sound like, Billy, you got an A on the science quiz. You must have worked really hard on that. And that sort of puts the ownership back on, on Billy to sort of uh, have some, um, some say in who he is and who he becomes. Now, uh, the bigger thing that I wanted to talk about when you, when you said that was there is so much support for going left. And, and that's not just because it's easier. It's because there's a extreme amount of guilt. I think that people live with, especially older people who have seemingly, they, they can't go back, you know, they can't chase their dreams anymore. Right. And so they need to do one of two things. They need to corroborate the lie that they've been telling themselves or face this blinding mirror in front of them. You know, it's the reason why fitness freaks people out. Uh, they're very opinionated about it because when people observe others doing something that they are unwilling to do themselves, they are uh, faced with this question, well, do I need to be responsible for my own health and wellness or can I just make that bad? Can I make weightlifting dangerous or can I uh, make this not my fault? And so I see, uh, especially older people doing this a lot when it comes to going left is, uh, folks like to get around in groups and normalize their behavior. You know, a great example of this is a buddy of mine is a former teammate, uh, in college and he was with the uh, New York Yankees for about five years. And immediately after his career, he went into a, a sales position and a more corporate job and he went in there just to sort of gain experience and learn. And what he did was he rose up the ranks and was like the youngest person to achieve this rank. He's making tons of money and he got his own territory. He was the first employee that the company had ever let work remote and he was just crushing the game. And the moment he got what he came for, so to speak, and learned the business, uh, he gave his two weeks notice and left. And his exit interviews from all the different departments was so telling in the area that I'm talking about right now. 
he would get on the phone a dozen times. This happened through all the different departments that he had to do an exit conversation with either formal or informal. And these people would say, Hey, Nick, bud, I'm so sorry to see you go. Uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, God knows I couldn't leave. You know, I got the kids here and then the house and stuff, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. I just, you know, I can't imagine leaving, uh, myself, you know, it's just the money, the money's so good, you know? And I just, and he's over there on the phone, like, Hey, is this about me or is this about you? What's the deal? And all these people, all these people are looking in the mirror and recognize that when they see someone go right, so to speak, it sort of makes them look like a liar, you know, it makes them face the, the, the stories that they've been telling themselves. And because that is so deep rooted in all of us, I find that, uh, we like to get in groups and let ourselves off the hook, you know? And so that is the social support that I see for going left, the socialized mind of, of, Hey man, like, I mean, we all can't be astronauts. Am I right? You know? And it's like some dude selling insurance who fucking hates it. Yeah. And he's just trying to make himself feel better. So going left, if we go back to Carol Dweck's work in mindset, going left would be fixed mindset, I suspect. And going right would be growth mindset, which is the premise of Carol Dweck's work. How do I, how do you suggest, or how do you use it at the gym? How do you use it in your own mind? How would somebody identify their fixed mindset triggers? It's a good question. So first, let me say that um, going right doesn't necessarily mean you have a growth mindset. And going left doesn't necessarily mean you have a fixed mindset. Um, it just really pays to have a growth mindset. Um, you can be, you know, you can reach almost any level of success. You can be a champion of whatever you'd like uh, with a fixed mindset. It's fully possible. I think the interesting conversation is the relative one, which is that uh, let's just pick the champion who's done it, who just so happens to have a fixed mindset. He or she could be even better if they had a growth mindset. So I'd like to sort of separate those two things. Um, but the a fixed mindset, I suspect, could get them there, but then totally. growth might be to win the championship twice, three times, or five times because you've got to continue to change and to grow, and right? Right. It, it's just the, the untapped performance that we may never see in someone. Like an example that Carol Dweck uses a lot is John McEnroe. John McEnroe was uh, you know, perennial champion, legend, Hall of Fame um, tennis player uh, with – one of the most stereotypical fixed mindsets ever, right? It was never his fault. Any negative outcome was um, de deflected and placed on someone else. And while he was incredible at what he was uh, able to do on the tennis court, uh, what we can never know is who John McEnroe could have been if he was highly interested in um, taking in the feedback of, failure differently. And so that's how you will know you can sort of self-diagnose uh, whether or not you have a fixed or growth mindset in any sort of uh, given area. Because if you have a growth mindset, because you generally view your traits as malleable, it changes how you may perceive feedback. So if someone tells you 
here's a great example. The the guy I just spoke about, Nick McCoy is his name, is the guy that actually turned me on to the book years ago. Uh, a teammate of mine. And he goes, you got to read this book. My sister is a school teacher and she's like changing the game with how they they teach in like third grade or something. And I think he'd really like it. And I go, oh, cool, what's the premise? And he goes, well, you know, when, you know, at the University of San Diego, where we beat the living hell out of San Diego State. Um, that was just me giving a quick shout out to the Aztecs. Um, when, you know, you know, when we beat the living hell out of San Diego State every single year, and I'm like, yeah, I totally know how we would beat the living hell out of San Diego State every single year. Uh, and he goes, and Coach Hill would come in, and we'd, it'd be a three-game sweep, and, he, and we'd sit down for our post-series meeting, and he would, like, randomly rip into us. I'm like, yeah, it's hilarious, right? And he's like, well, you know, he would say, like, you know, we don't run the bases. There's no attention to detail, no hustle, whatever. And he's giving me this specific example. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you know how you used to, even if he wasn't talking about you, you know how you wanted to make it true? Like the fixed mindset person would be like, bullshit coach. I do run hard, but who the fuck do you think you, right? In your head. But the growth mindset individual wants that information to be valuable to them because now this coach is giving me feedback that can inform me on how to improve my skill. Yeah, you know what? I did make that mistake in the second inning on the bases and I could have done this better. And you're highly interested then as a growth mindset individual and how you can extract the valuable lesson from that type of feedback. But if you're like John McEnroe and you believe that you're either a gifted athlete or you're not, and you get a bad call on a ball that maybe is on the line, you know, or you get a coach that tells you, hey, your backhand is a little bit lazy uh, today. You don't hear that as information that you can use to improve your thing. You hear that as a reflection of your unchangeable ability. So now all of a sudden the coach or the referee is an asshole, right? Because I don't want that to be true about me because if they are right and I'm not as good as I think I am or, or want to be, then that is something that is out of my control. I am permanently that, a bad backhand guy. Oh my God. You know, and so you can really tap into how you receive feedback, specifically disconfirming information or negative feedback as a diagnostic tool about your growth or fixed mindset. Uh, I am... The, I get, look, I've got a page of questions I haven't even got to yet, mate, but um, I'm conscious of your time and uh, we did take some off-ramps, which was super valuable. I just I just want to finish on a, a question about fitness and it's just something I've been thinking about for the last year or so. Do you think in fitness are we training for the right things? I I know a lot of people are training in all different disciplines and all different things. Is it possible to be fit and not well? Like, are we training for the wrong things in our mind and then consequently perhaps not getting the best results as people, humans, wellness? What's your view on that? I'm just interested and you're seeing it every day. Do you think the majority of people are set, setting foot, well, not just in a gym, but setting foot to go and train exercise with the right things in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, of course. So 
so firstly, fitness is such a bizarre world. Like the, some of the weirdest human behavior can be found in fitness. I am not even really proud to be uh, associated with it most of the time. Uh, calling me a personal trainer is one of like, the most offensive things you can say to me. Um, just because of the the pool of people that that puts you in, and it's just really weird and bizarre. And, of course, the answer is that it's possible to be really fit and completely unwell. Some of the most mentally and physically unstable people are extremely fit by whatever standard of their sport is. And so I think there's a lot of behavior as humans where uh, going back to that truth thing where people are trading, they're sort of trading in this sort of fitness chip, uh, to distract from their own mirror of, of truth. And, uh, that shows up a million different ways. You know, as a gym owner, you'll see people who would much rather pay all the money. I mean, lots of money to not get fit. Uh, people who, would rather suffer and do all kinds of horrible workouts, but not regularly enough to get fit, just enough to like it'd be miserable when they do it. Uh, you know, all kinds of concessions are made and deals are made. I think a lot of people seek personal training for that way. Hey, you can't blame me. I'm paying the the trainer a bunch of money to do the thing and I go three days a week. So you you can't blame me. I got my hands up. I'm doing my part and they're getting literally nowhere, like zero results, you know? And so, uh, there's a lot of different expressions of, of that thing. Uh, I think the highest version of this conversation is we really need to define what winning is. You know, I use an example lately, which no offense to Tate because he's in the movie, but Jumanji, Jumanji two. And I've told him this to his face. You know, I see him every other day, so we're good. Uh, Jumanji 2 has made $900 million. And that is, I mean, no offense, but that's not a cinematic victory for anybody, really. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the director of Jumanji 2 is not like, life work done, boom. You know, but those guys, I mean, The the Rock and Kevin Hart and those guys, surely they were not there to make art. They were, they they defined what winning was. And it was, hey, we are going to change the game on how we can enroll ourselves and promote our own movies and build our empire. That was a tool for them to do that. But if if you're going to define winning as um, cinematographer in terms of making art that's going to impact people and change, whatever, like, that that for sure didn't accomplish that, you know, but if you decide that winning is making a, a billion dollars, then they for sure nailed it, you know? And so I think fitness provides that, that same opportunity, you know, you get to decide what the outcomes or what winning would look like for you. And I think we need to do this in business. We need to do this in fitness. We need to do this everywhere in our lives. And, um, I just see a tendency for humans is like to, to concede what we really want and uh, put ourselves in a position to like defer blame. You know, people will do pay all the money and do the worst fucking workouts and puke and do all this crazy shit. But that is easier. Emptying your bank account is easier and people would rather do it than actually get well. 
you know, like, Oh God, like, don't make me do that. Don't make me look myself in the, in the mirror and accomplish something that really is meaningful to me. Let me just do a bunch of stuff where people won't blame me, you know? And it's, it's a, it's the hard truth of sort of being held accountable, personal accountability, I think. Um, and I think uh, it's not my, uh, you or I or anybody else is not in position to decide what that is for people. Only they will, will really know. Um, just one thing on that before I let you go, and I'm really appreciative of your time and hanging in there with us, but one, one quick thing that I heard you say that just backed on to what you just said. Your comment was that we want to know the rules so we can blame the rules. Just expand upon that just to, to wrap it up for us because it kind of segues at the back of what you just talked about, but tell me how your observations of people wanting to know the rules, they've got someone to blame. Hey, you guys did your research. That's awesome. So uh, I really sort of formulated that maxim based on my observation of how people deal with nutrition conversation. and. When someone is having success, health and wellness-wise, they have a body that someone is envious of or they have just a lifestyle or performance that they're envious of and they inquire about the nutrition part. I find that people are very interested in what the rules are. So is it paleo or is it not paleo? Like, so no carbs, right? Like no carbs. And so these are all, they want to know the rules because if you make it very clear, if you set the rules for them, then it removes the personal responsibility for them to get the results, right? So there's like these challenges, like we play the whole life challenge, you know, once a year, for example, and there's some rules. And so bananas, are they legal or is that more of a, is that not legal? Is it dried fruit that are legal or is it those illegal? And it's like, listen up. There are some rules to this game. However, if you eat bananas, which are quote unquote healthy, if you have 31 bananas every day and nothing else, you will get all the points to the game and you might actually win a thousand dollars at the end, but you will also have diabetes plus 20 pounds and you'll feel like shit. Right. And so is it about the rules or is it about getting what you came for, so to speak? And I think, um, the, the, the sort of uncomfortable, nature of being responsible for your own actions is something that's going to follow us wherever we go. And this, I just observe uh, humans wanting to defer that anywhere, including in, in the rules, because it's very possible to follow any rules and stay inside of any lanes and borders of any fitness practice or nutrition thing or religion or whatever, and still muddy it up, you know? And so ultimately it's the mirror. You got to go back to the mirror and, and that will transcend all the, the rules, I think. I coached my kids' footy team and, and there's this rule I have, it's rugby union, and there's this rule I have for the back line is that we don't kick outside our 22. So if we're, we're close to our own defensive line, then we can kick the ball away. But when we're attacking, when we're close to the line that we're going to score over, we don't kick. And it's been that way for the last three or four years. And on the weekend, for the first time ever, one of my, one of my guys put a kick up and long story short, we scored off it. So the rest of the team's jogging back while the goal kicker gets set to take the kick. And this guy, Elliot, jogs over to the sideline go to me and goes, see what happens when you break the rules, Robbo? 
That's amazing. So, yeah, I was proud of that. That was awesome. Game recognizes That's, game. Absolutely. As, as I would say. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I think, uh, you know, a great example is like a, a great case study. You know, uh, Nordstrom's is like a, it's a department store, you know, here in the U.S. And the, they were really famous and really successful for a long time because of their crazy, like, customer service. And the, the old legend has it that, you know, they, they sell clothing and, and uh, their original sort of flagship store where it all started up in uh, Seattle, Washington, I believe. Uh, someone, it, it was previously uh, an auto service place, like years prior, like a decade before. And some old guy, like, tried to return tires that he bought at the same building, but it was no longer the building and and it was Nordstrom's and Nordstrom's gladly accepted and gave him a refund on a product that they never sold him, you know? And then that's like the, the, where the origin story was, but it was what was sort of built on the back of that is this ultimate customer service. And my, my dad used to work for Nordstrom's back in the heyday as well, which where, you know, they would drive shoes to, to people's houses to deliver them by hand or whatever. And, and part of what makes the case study uh, unique in this customer service thing is that they, there was no rule or there's no policy, you know, because what is a, you know, those like shitty employees that you got to deal with. Hey, I, I just work here. Sorry. Can't help you. And you're like, no, but like, I just got kicked off my flight and my whole family's stranded here or whatever. It's like, can you help us with about, no, nah, I'm sorry. I can't do anything because they're, saved by the rules they get to relinquish responsibility to to policy and while while there's good reason for policy in some areas when you give a group um, an organization or some employees or a team ownership of their behavior ownership of their choices like Nordstrom's did Nordstrom's uh, said you can do whatever you believe is right you can discount things you can give product, you can refund, the sky's the limit. And I think a lot of leaders would balk at that and fear that their employees would sort of take advantage or there'd be some sort of of shenanigans going on. What you observe is that 100% of the employees are held accountable to their decisions because their actions are truly theirs, right? And that is ultimately power, I think. and it's something that, no, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's just something that I think if you look close enough, people are doing everywhere all too often. They're they're trying to relinquish responsibility. We heard an example of that just recently, Logan. We heard David Heinemeyer Hansen, who I mentioned before at Basecamp, him and Jason Freed. And they have no budgets for people for expenditure. And they have basically a credit card. And they can buy or do what they want. And the interviewer said, well, how does that go? And he said, we've never, ever had a problem because we empower and trust them to say, the only, the only guideline is do what you think's right. And people do. And so that trust comes, totally. which goes right back to where we started with great leadership comes from great trust. Yeah, we have the same policy at Deuce. Everybody has an American Express card and they can do whatever they want. And what we have there is trust and freedom and, and subsequently ironically, accountability, uh, which is what people think they're, they're getting when they have rules. Um, and it, 
it creates leadership and streamlines processes. You know, no one can say, hey, like I totally would fix that, but hands are tied, man. I got to wait for the boss, man. You know, mm-hmm. you are the boss, man, right? Every, everybody, you can, you can be on a team. This is what we talk about in the summit. You can be on a team with 100% of the teammates being leaders. Leadership is a teachable skill where you can have 100% compliance to leadership. You can have a, an organization of a 100, 200, 300, 1,000 people where they're all leaders. This has been terrific. Uh, we really have enjoyed this a lot. Uh, it's, it's interesting, though. I think what, what I really get from people like you, Logan, when we get to interview them is we rang Deuce to track you down uh, because I gave Robbo the, the wrong number. So we rang Deuce and the young guy answered the phone. And we started looking for Logan. He said, oh, he's just left. He's gone home to do a podcast. And we said, well, where it? And then I heard him talk to another girl. And she said, no, he's just left. He's gone home to do a podcast. And it's funny because from that I take, number one is the standard of the, I'm going to be at home where it's quiet. I can concentrate. I'm going to do this podcast right. Whereas we do get guests who are doing it in a car or walking down the street or in a cafe and I don't know, it's just, you, just, you just know that they're not in the moment and there's a standard there. And number two is your team knew that this was important enough. You were separating yourself from the business to be in the moment with us. And I think it goes back to what Michael Gervais from the Seattle Seahawks talks about with Game Recognizes Game. We get a real kick out of people like yourself and the Tates and Ryans, all the guys you hang out with on a daily basis. There's a standard. And we we really appreciate people who actually have the standard and put rubber on the road and not just write a book or do podcasts or write a couple of blogs about other people's materials, but have a view and actually do it day in, day out. And uh, you've been very, very kind with your time, mate. This has been awesome. We've taken some off, off ramps and I've still got stuff I'd like to ask you about, but if we can get you back on when the book is done, we can delve into some more stuff. But uh Thank you. I, I, I loved it. Thank, thank you so much. And uh, I, I'd love to spend some more time time with y'all. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it is meaningful to me. And I think the work that y'all are doing is, is quite meaningful as well. You named some, some names on this show that makes me feel like I wonder why I'm on it. Uh, but I'm quite honest. <laughs> tell you, what, we wonder why we host it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll, we'll keep the petri dish going. Uh, yeah, say good day right. to Tate, and you can tell Tate from us, and we have spoken to him since then. But honestly, it's we, we get these shows like this, Logan. Every now and then, you get one. It just it sticks with us. We put something up on the on the wall of the studio, and it just. You know, it's not so much they're the best shows. I wouldn't describe it like that, but it's the shows that are meaningful and are moving and you get philosophical stuff you can apply to your own world from someone who really cares about it means, and as, as Tate would say, is being of service. And um, I think your stuff's great. Where where do people track you down? Like for those who want to know more about Logan, who've just been introduced to you, where do you send them normally? Yeah, I'm a full-on millennial, I think. Actually, not technically, but uh, I, I act like one. So, uh <laughs> at functional coach is where you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And, um, you know, the, all the educational material for deuce can be found at prep.deucegym.com. And that's where the the online courses are at and the, the uh, seminars and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I'm easy to find on the internet. And when can we expect the book? You know, the, this editor thinks 
uh, that we can wrap it up in two months, and then I guess it goes to a giant printer somewhere in China, and then it's just... <laughs> 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 or I, maybe I just yeah, just run them off. Just run them off on the, office, just, just them off on the Canon, Canon desk jet or something. That'll do. How so, can it be? Three hundred and ten pages times what? There's three of us that are going to read it. So, yeah, it's not too bad. i to tell you what. I'm looking forward to reading it after chatting to you. It sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. The Mojo Radio Show. Okay, mate. After that, lot, we're going to have to pull over and refuel the big red bus because we're just about out of gas after that journey. <laughs> Jeez, the Tom Tom is busy, wasn't it? I tell you the what, nav, the Nav Man. <laughs> now, now he also gave us, uh, and I'm sure everybody heard it, he gave us the greatest lesson of rock around Dave Grohl. So it is a long-form show. We're not going to muck around. We're going to let you get into your day, hold the standard, and be of service to someone else. To play us out, all I'm going to say is, if this is driver's choice, name a Foo Fighters track. Uh, Monkey Wrench. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.